This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion one verse at a time. Hello, I am Jeremy Myers, host of the One Verse Podcast. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? We began to see an answer to that question last week when we looked at Genesis 1.26. I said there were four contextual keys, and we looked at one of them last week. We're going to be looking at the other three today. If you haven't listened to that episode, it's episode 19 of the One Verse Podcast. Go back and listen to it. I refer back to it a lot in our study today, so it'll be good background material for what you listen to today. Now, before we get to that, I want to remind you that our sponsor for this month is potentially you. Thank you for all of you who have given so far to help support all the expenses that I incur through my uh, blog and through this podcast and the books I write. It gets very, very expensive. And uh, so some people have partnered with me on that. I really, really appreciate it. If that's something you'd like to do in the coming year, you can go to redeeminggod.com slash partner. Learn a little bit more about why blogging and writing and podcasting is so expensive and how I've tried to cover those expenses on my own and how you can participate with me through a one-time gift or maybe some sort of monthly donation going forward. I really appreciate those of you who have given and those of you who are thinking of doing so. If you have any questions, please do not hesitate to write me an email and ask them. I will answer them. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, also, by the way, uh, if you are thinking, this is not my sponsor, but I want to mention it anyway. If you're thinking of getting Logos Bible software, I just received an email yesterday from them letting me know that as of the new year in 2016, the discount code will no longer be 15%, but will only be 10%. So if that's something you've been thinking of doing, I wanted to mention it just so you can get it in before the end of the year. Buy your Logos software before the end of the year. Use my coupon code JMyers6. That will give you 15% off, but only until the new year. After that, it will be only 10%. All right. So with that in mind and out of the way, let's get on with our study as we look at the final three keys, the contextual keys on what it means to be made in the image of God. Okay, so in that previous episode, episode 19, when we began to look at what it means to be made in the image of God, I talked about some of the common theories that are out there, such as, you know, God's a trinity and therefore we're a trinity, body, soul, and spirit, or, well, what separates us from the animals, intellect, emotions, and will, so that must be what separates us, that must be what it means to be made in the image of God. Uh, We talked about those sorts of things, and I rejected all of them, and I said that there were three or four contextual keys, which helps us understand what it means to be made in the image of God. And we talked about that first one last week. And that first one was, just by way of review, that there are these seven activities of God in Genesis chapter 1. And what we see God doing following his creation of mankind is telling us, telling you and me, telling the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, that they too should be involved in these seven activities. Basically, what we saw then is that when we do what God is doing, then we are acting like God and the earth. So that when people see us, they see God. And we and I even pointed out that is what Jesus himself did. He said he only does what he sees the Father doing. 
And so when we look at Genesis 1, if we want to be like Jesus, if we want to be like God, then we can look at the seven activities of God in Genesis 1, and we can act as the image of God by doing those same seven activities. Anyway, go back and listen to episode 19 where we looked at that first contextual key, these seven activities of God in Genesis 1. I'll probably bring some of that up again when we begin to look at Genesis chapter 2, maybe even next week when we look at these three uh, commands that God gives Adam and Eve, the first humans, after he creates them. Anyway, let's uh, begin to look at these uh, next three keys. And uh, the second contextual key is the cultural context key. Uh, and by cultural context, what I really mean is religious context. I brought this up a lot of times, numerous times in, in previous episodes. Uh, back then, culture and religion were intimately connected. You really, you really couldn't have one without the other. Uh, you know, honestly, it's the same way it is today. We, we just delude ourselves into thinking that we can separate culture and society you know, in politics from religion. We can't. They're all connected, and those who try to separate them the most are usually the ones who have them most connected. Uh, anyway, but that's a subject for another time. Uh, back in Moses' day, the cultural-religious context of Genesis 1 uh, was, you know, the, the religions of Egypt that they had just come out of, the religions of Babylon, which was pervasive in the area, and of course the religions of the Canaanites, which was the land uh, which they were heading to. And uh, there are lots of contextual religious keys in those religions that talk about the image of God. For example, Egypt, they had just come out of Egypt. In Egypt, uh, they did have something, the image of God, at least the creator God, and uh, guess what the image of the Creator God was? It was Ra. Uh, his image was the sun, uh, that ball of fire up in the sky. And that's why Egyptians were sort of sun worshippers. Uh, so that was the image of God, the image of the Creator God, anyway. Other gods had other images. Uh, but there are some other parallels as well. For example, in Egyptian mythology, humans were formed by a potter god named Knum, formed out of clay, and then were animated by the breath of Ra. That's interesting, right? Sounds very similar to what we are going to read in Genesis 2, when uh, God formed Adam, and he, Adam, anyway, out of the dust of the ground and then breathed into him the breath of life. Very, very similar to what we read in the Egyptian creation accounts. Uh, the Babylonian accounts, very similar. They're also the gods. Guess what? They form humans out of clay as well, and then they bring the clay to life by mixing it with the blood of a slain god. You might remember that uh, Marduk went to war with Tiamat. One of the casualties in that war was a god named Kingu, and they took his blood after Marduk was victorious. They took Kingu's blood, mixed it with clay, formed humans out of the clay and then the humans came to life because they were mixed with they had they had divine blood in them uh interestingly you you, you go and read those accounts it is the creation of mankind that brings peace to the warring gods it's the death of the god and his blood and the creation of mankind that brings peace to heaven sort of backwards from the way we often think about it you might remember, though, that the reason they went to war in the first place is they were at war because they were couldn't decide who should do what, who has the most power, uh, who was going to do all the work. So they go to war, and their ultimate 
solution was, you know what, none of us want to do any of this work, so let's just create humans to do all the work for us. And uh, once they did that, now the gods could just sit around and rest and relax and uh, humans would, would serve them and be slaves to the gods, do all the work for the gods. So, uh, and by the way, that leads to another important point here from Genesis 1 uh, in relation to these Babylonian accounts. In those accounts, you might have noticed there's, there's really never any equality among the gods. They have a hierarchy. There's certain gods with more power and glory. And when they create humans, they create humans the same way. There's not equality among humans. They create some humans with greater power and, and strength and glory and, and all that sort of thing. And uh, just as the humans were created to serve the gods, so also when the gods, these Babylonian gods, create humans, they create some humans simply for the purpose of serving other humans. And that's really where sort of this parallel gets interesting. In uh, Egyptian and Babylonian culture, in fact, in most cultures, even modern Western culture, it's typically thought that God has blessed certain people and they're at the top and God has given them more money or more wisdom or more strength or power, or glory, or maybe they have a special ability to hear from God and share the wisdom of God with the rest of us or something like that. Uh, and so they get all the glory, they get all the praise, they get all the recognition, they get all the money and the wealth and the power and the privilege and all that sort of thing. And that's very, very common. And that's the way it really was back in Egyptian and Babylonian cultures as well. And back then, though, they said the reason was, these people at the top, was because they were made or they bore the image and likeness of gods. That's why. That was their explanation. said, it's only right. You know, that I rule you and you all serve me because I bear the image and likeness of God. And that means you're just all my servants. They found a statue back in 1979. They were doing an archaeological excavation in northern Syria. And they found this statue of this king. It listed all the king's achievements, had a statue of the king. And then underneath in two languages, in Assyrian and Aramaic, it had all of these uh, descriptions of, of what he had accomplished. And among his descriptions, it said that he bore the image and likeness of God. So it's very interesting, that parallel there, with what we see here in Genesis 1 and also in some of these other Egyptian and Babylonian and Canaanite accounts. But notice what's going on here in Genesis 1. There's no hierarchy. There's no certain people set at the top and everybody else has to serve him and bow down to him and worship him and treat him, this human being, like a god himself. No. In Genesis 1, the image of God, it's not just for the rich and powerful, not for the kings and military leaders and rulers and the priests. No. In Genesis 1, the image of God is given to both the man and the woman. We've talked about that in the past. In fact, it's not just the image of God in man and the image of God in woman. It's the image of God together. They are together the image of God in relationship. We've talked about that as well. So it's implied that uh, together, those who come from them, their children, their descendants, also will bear the image and likeness of God. And in fact, that's exactly what we see over in Genesis 1 5 and 3. The exact phrase, image and likeness, is only two times in the Bible, those two words together in that exact phrase, uh, here uh, in Genesis 1, and then also in Genesis 5, 3, where we see that, Mo that Adam passes down this image and likeness to his children. Uh, Adam was made, made in the image and likeness of God, and his children are made in the image and likeness of Adam, which means they also bear the image of God. It got passed through Adam from God through Adam, 
uh, down to his descendants, which means it comes down to you and to me as well. So all of this is to, all this together is the second cultural key, the second uh, second key, which is the cultural key of what it means to be made in the image of God. The other religions in Moses' day and most religions today, including much of Christianity, sort of teach, and we wouldn't exactly say it this way, but sort of practice anyway, that a certain few people at the top of the pile, they have this special connection with God, the special blessings from God, the special insight, the special knowledge, whatever it is. And so somehow or another, they won the divine lottery. They are closer to God than the rest of us. And the rest of us just sort of need to shuffle along, keep our heads down and say yes, ma'am, and no, sir, and, and, and do whatever they say. But that's not what we see here in Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is saying, Moses is saying, all of us are made in the image of God. All of us are, in a sense, kings and, and, and rulers and authorities. We, we are all infinitely valuable, infinitely blessed, infinitely loved by God. It's not just the kings and mili military heroes. It's everybody, all of us, you and me, are made in the image of God. Um. So, so that's, the, that's the cultural, religious context, and that really helps us sort of see what Moses is trying to say. Or again, it's a theological truth here. He's differentiating what he is saying about the image of God from what other religions say about the image of God. It's not just reserved for, for rulers and, and, and military leaders, but for everybody. That's the second key. All right, third then. The third contextual key is the Mosaic law, the, the Mosaic context. Moses obviously is the writer of this text here in Genesis 1. And over in Exodus 20, we have the Ten Commandments, very famous passage. But the third commandment is God's uh, instructing the Israelites to not make any graven image. Um, and uh, you might have, if we've been going through this, you might have even thought about that, about uh, the God's commandment there to not be, to not, not make any graven image, not make any image of God. And I think that the reason is because, uh, well, there's two reasons. The reason stated, obviously, is, look, I don't want you to make any graven images of me because then you will be tempted to bow down and worship them. But really, I think the Israelites are sort of supposed to go back and think about what Moses has written here in Genesis chapter 1 and make the connection that the reason God didn't want us to make any images of him is because he had already made an image of himself. <laughs> and I don't think that you and I can do better than he did. In fact, when we try, the best we can get is some sort of statue made of wood or stone or metal, gold or silver or something, that all it can do is sit there on the pedestal and stare at us while we give it, you know, clothing and drink and pray to it. And that's just ridiculous. God is saying... Don't make an image of me because I don't want one because I've already got one. The one I made is better than anything you can make. By the way, I should point out, if you got your Logos Bible software, uh, the word, in case your Bible scholars out there are saying, no, it doesn't, doesn't say that. Uh, the, the Hebrew word for image in Exodus 24 is different than the Hebrew word for image in Genesis 1, 26 and 30. Okay, so I do, I do know that. I am aware of that. But uh, if you do a word study on both, Logos will help you with this, and you go through, they're basically used interchangeably, those sorts of words throughout the Bible. They both re can refer to idols and images and statues uh, that were very common in Israel's neighbors and even among 
Israel herself at various times in, in Israel's history. So anyway, uh, they're synonyms, basically. All right, so I am aware. I am aware. But uh, the, the point, basically the point, though, is it goes back to the cultural context we just looked at. The nations that surrounded Israel, they were constantly making these idols of, of wood and, and stone and, and, and metal, gold and silver, and they were worshiping them. And Israel was forbidden to do that. Why? Because God had already made an image of himself, something in his image and likeness. And, and, and those idols of wood and stone, they couldn't move, they couldn't breathe, they couldn't talk, they couldn't do anything. But the image and likeness which God himself had made, it did move, it did breathe, it did talk, it did think. And that makes it so much better. That makes you and I better. So uh, the reason God forbids the Israelites from making any graven, graven image of himself is because he's already got one. Um, and uh, God doesn't want people to make anything in his image because he has already made us in his image. And unlike all those, those graven images of all the other religions, the, the true image of God, it doesn't sit on a pedestal or in a little temple somewhere, you know, waiting for people to come and offer it little bowls of food and cups of drink, hoping to you know, manipulate that particular God and giving them some gift in return. No, God's image in the world lives and walks and moves and breathes. God's image in the world doesn't sit in a temple waiting for, well, most images, <laughs> uh, waiting for people to come give them money and, and gifts and food and clothes and drink. Again, it does happen. We all know it. Uh, it's wrong, but that is what happens. Uh, no, God's image in the world, we're supposed to go out and give food and clothing to other images of God, people, and in so doing, God gives good gifts to them through us. That's what James is talking about in James 2. Again, that's a separate point. But um, that's the third contextual key here, that um, about the, the connection between the image of God in the Ten Commandments, the, the prohibition, the restriction on making any graven images of God. God's already got one. He doesn't need us to try and make one for him. All right? That's the, uh, the third key. The fourth key, then, is the Jesus context. This is uh, the contextual looking at Jesus, context of looking at Jesus, Jesus context. Uh, the fact that humans were made in the image of God leads us to wonder how we can live, how we're supposed to live. What does it mean to live as the image of God? And God gave us the perfect model in Jesus Christ. New Testament teaches us that Jesus is the exact representation of God. Jesus himself says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Other authors say that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. Again, you might recognize some of that language from what we read here in Genesis 1. Humans were made in the image of God, and then when Jesus comes, the New Testament authors, and Jesus himself says that he, he is the perfect image of God. I think what we have going on in Jesus is a representation of what God really wanted humans to be. Oftentimes, we sort of think that Jesus reveals God to us, and he does. No doubt about it, Jesus reveals God to us. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. But the fact that Jesus is made in the image of God, and you and I are made in the image of God— tells us that Jesus not only reveals to us what God is like, but Jesus also reveals to us what humans are supposed to be like. 
If you want to be truly human the way God wants you to live and act as a human, you can do no better than to have Jesus as your model. Jesus reveals to us what God intended humans to be like. If we look at Jesus, we not only see true God, but we also see true man. So, uh, look, if you, if you want to live and function as the image of God, Jesus is the perfect image of God. So, live like Jesus, live, then you'll be living like God, and actually in that way, you'll be living as a true human being, because you'll be doing the activities which God has assigned to humans. See how it's all connected? It's all connected in this beautiful array of, of God-made humans to act like God on this earth, to represent God, to be like God. And since we broke that in the sin, then he sent Jesus to show it to us once again, give us the perfect example of what he is like, of what we are like. And by living like we are supposed to be, then we live like him. Just all connects together, fits together in this perfect, perfect, beautiful picture of harmony and peace and love. So, so those are the four contextual keys. The, uh, the context, the textual context of Genesis 1, the cultural context, looking at the other religions, the mosaic context of the law and the image of God, and we can't make images because he's already got one, and then the Jesus context. He is the perfect image of God. So, to sum it all up then, what is the image of God? Well, it means to do the things God does. Okay? That, that was the first thing. To live and breathe as God functionaries. God's emissary, his ambassador, his representative. It, it means to, uh, as we move and breathe, to live with that in mind. That God doesn't want us to make graven images of himself because we are the image of himself. And if we want to know what that looks like, well, then we can look at Jesus, to live as he lived and only do what we see the Father doing. Going to the cultural context, it means that we, we don't serve other gods, but we are to partner with God in doing his work in this world to be his co-regents, his business partners. And when we start to recognize this truth about ourselves, it radically changes how we think, how we live, how we understand God in the world. Let me just close out today's episode by giving you three suggested ways that you can live as the image of God in the world. First, To live as the image of God means that everything you and I do is an act of worship. Think about this. Since we are the image of God, it's, you know, we're like his hands and feet, the presence of God on earth. That means that God is joining with you in everything you do. If you keep that thought in the back of your mind, Other Christians have called it practicing the presence of God or something like that. But if you keep that thought in the back of your mind that God is with you, God is joining you in your activities, then what that means is that everything you do becomes an act of worship to God. When you sit down to enjoy a good meal, God is enjoying it with you. Because eating food is an act of worship because you're enjoying something God gave you to enjoy. If you go out with some friends and laugh and have a good time with friends, if you hike up a beautiful mountain or you go out and visit the ocean or you have the pleasure of listening to good music or the, the, the pure bliss of falling to sleep after a long day, look, all of those actions are actions of worship to God because you are representing God. You are doing the activities of God that he has called you to do 
And by doing that, you're living as a human being, which he has called you to do, and that's an act of worship. I know you've probably heard this before, but we Christians, we sometimes think worship is only when we're sitting in a, in a building somewhere with our hands raised singing a song. That might be a teeny tiny little bit of worship, but that is not the majority. That is not most of the ways we worship. Get it? Sort of put it in the back of your mind that as you go throughout your day, everything you do is or can be an act of worship. And that's going to change how you view life, how you view your actions, how you view your day-to-day interactions with other people. It's going to just change how you view God. It's going to change how you view yourself. It's going to change how you view other people. It's going to affect your uh, what, what you think about sin and all those sorts of things, okay? It's huge topic there for discussion. I can't get into it today. Uh, second then, second suggestion here, uh, living with this sort of mindset about the image of God. It means that you never have to wonder what God is up to in your life. I know, it's a huge thing in Christians. Just We always want to know God's will. Well, guess what? You no longer have to wonder what God's will is for your life. Why? Because God is up to whatever you are up to. <laughs> what are you doing right now? You're listening to this podcast. Well, guess what? God is there listening to it with you. And hopefully, maybe you're doing something else. You're driving to work. You're, you're, you're cleaning the house. You're doing the dishes. You're working out. I don't know. But uh, whatever it is, God is doing that with you too. You are the hands and feet and voice of God. Uh, and, and so whatever you are doing is what God is doing. So you don't have to wonder, well, what is God doing in my life? Because whatever you're doing is what God is doing. Obviously, we need to be a little careful with this. Uh, we don't want to drag God into things that he really doesn't want his name attached to. You know, sin and, and, and certain activities and, and even certain religious activities, I think, which sort of drag his name through the mud. But uh, look, the general idea is that you never really have to wonder about what God is up to in in your life or what God is doing in your life because... The fact is that as the image of God, as the one who carries out the activities of God on earth, as the one who represents God through what you do, what you say, what you think, how you act on earth, then God is always with you and he is always doing whatever it is you're doing. That is just an astonishing thought to think about. Also, will revolutionize the way you view life, the way you view yourself, the way you view your daily routine, everything you think and say and do, and how other people treat you as well. And that leads to the third and final point. Uh, if you ever wonder what God wants you to do in life, all you really have to do is think about what you want to do. Uh, again, this idea can be abused, all right? I know selfishness and all that sort of thing, but, but uh, you know, people will chase after selfish pursuits. But, but here's, here's the thing. If your primary goal in life is to love others, right? Well, that's God's primary goal. Jesus said it. Love Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So if your goal basically is to love God and love others, to love one another as he's commanded us, then you can be certain that any desire you have in your life is God's desire for your life. He gave it to you. He gave you that desire of your heart. Okay? So so if you see something in life that needs to be fixed and you see or you see someone that 
needs to be loved or, or you find a, you know some place that you can serve, then it's not something you necessarily need to, to pray about or, or, or even here, here's what we often see. Oh, that person really needs to be helped. God, I pray that you would raise someone up to help them. <laughs> and God's saying, yeah, I, I'm praying that too. And you're the guy, you know, you're the, you're the woman. Uh, you go help that person. Uh, that's how it often works. So um, that, that's what's, uh, if, if you see a need, if you see something to, 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 to love, to, if someone to love, something to somewhere to serve, then uh, that's what God wants you to do. Uh, the reason you saw the need or sensed the loneliness or, or felt the, the fear in the other person is because God is calling you to be his hands and his voice in that situation and to that person. So, you who bear the image of God in this world, Get out there and be his image. Let your light so shine before men that when they see your good deeds, they recognize them as coming from God, whom you represent, and so glorify your Father who is in heaven. I hope this episode was encouraging to you. That wraps it up for our study of the image of God. We have one more episode left in Genesis chapter 1. We'll be looking at that, doing that next week when we look at Genesis 1, 28 through 31, and the three activities that God gives humans to participate in immediately after he creates them. So if you're looking for three things that God wants you to do in 2016, Hey, you don't want to miss that episode. <laughs> if you're looking for some New Year's resolutions, you know, something to, to do with your life in 2016 and the year ahead, don't miss that episode. You will be pleasantly surprised. We are going to finish out 2015 with a bang by finishing out Genesis chapter 1 with the three things God wants you to do in your life. See you then. <laughs>